Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. You are currently listening to the Backtracker History Show Remembrance Day special. Remembrance Day, also known as Poppy Day, owing to the tradition of wearing a remembrance poppy, is a memorial day observed in the Commonwealth member states since the end of the First World War in 1919 to honour armed forces members who have died in the line of duty. A period of silence is held at 11am to remember the people who have died in the wars around the world. And this year, Remembrance Day is on a Saturday, marking the actual day World War I ended at 11am on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. Remembrance Sunday is also marked each year and usually falls on the second Sunday in November. These Remembrance Day specials highlight the lives of those brave men and women whose actions saved lives, but whose names may be forgotten. The first of today's war heroes that I'd like to talk about is Sergeant Thomas Edward Rendell, who was a British Army soldier and a recipient of the Victoria Cross, the highest and most prestigious award for gallantry in the face of the enemy that can be awarded to British and Commonwealth forces. Thomas Edward Rendell was born on the 14th of December 1884 in Bedminster, the eldest of seven children of James Rendell, a paper merchant's packer, and Charlotte Rendell, a domestic servant. His mother died in 1898, at which time his father was forced to split the family up. Thomas and his older sister, Charlotte, stayed with their father, whilst his four other siblings were sent to Canada. After attempting to join the Gloucestershire Regiment, but being unable to, he enlisted with the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, in September 1902, travelling to South Africa in January 1903. It was here that he met his wife, Lillian Sarah Crow, a resident of South Africa, working as a nursemaid for the children of Captain Turner of the DCLI, having first done so in England. They were married in South Africa in 1906 
moving back to England in the same year. Their first child, Ruby Lillian Jessie Rendell, was born in Plimpton, Devon in 1907, with a son, Edward William Wooten Rendell, being born in 1909 in Gravesend, Kent. Rendell's pre-World War I service was predominantly served with the regiment in England and Ireland. Word of the Week This week's Word of the Week is... Armistice, which descends from the Latin sister, meaning to come to a stand or to cause to stand or stop, combined with armour, meaning weapons. And so it literally translates into the two warring parties stopping the use of weapons. The earliest known use of the known armistice is in the late 1600s. And so, an armistice is a formal agreement of warring parties to stop fighting. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the war, just that they're going to stop hostilities whilst they make an attempt to negotiate lasting peace. Let's not confuse armistice with a peace treaty, which may take months or even years to agree on. The 1953 Korean War Armistice Agreement is a major example of an armistice which has not been followed by a peace treaty. In 1907, Rendell became a bandsman, then becoming, as all the band did, a stretcher bearer in World War I. On the 13th of August 1914, aged 29, he travelled to France with the regiment. On the 18th of November 1914, the 1st Battalion, DCLI, were holding the front line near Wilvergum in Belgium. It was at 9am on the 20th of November that German howitzers fired on British trenches in Wilvergum, a mile west of Mazines. The German lines were between 50 and 150 yards away. A company of the 1st Battalion, the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, was in the front line trenches, while C Company was in the support trench. About 40 yards of trench were blown in, causing heavy casualties. Bandsman Rendell went out as a stretcher bearer under heavy fire and shell fire to rescue the wounded. Some he saved by lying on his back, hooking his feet under their armpits and dragging them backwards to safety. During that terrible afternoon of the 20th of November 1914, the bombardment intensified. Lieutenant R.M. Colbrook lay in an isolated section, wounded in the thigh, the main artery being severed. Lieutenant R.R. Wingate dashed through heavy fire and was joined by Rendell. Together, they bandaged him up, and Rendell later recalled... The Germans were firing all the time with shell and machine guns. To get Lieutenant Colbrook back, I started digging a shallow burrow with my hands as I lay on the ground. He intended to make a safe pathway through to the trench beyond, 
by removing the earth that had fallen into the choked up part of their trench. And so, with haste, he tore into the loose soil. His nails were bleeding, his hands were cut, but he carried on, regardless of the bullets flying around. At the section of trench which had been levelled by shellfire, he had to crawl across the open ground. He gently raised Lieutenant Colbrook a few inches from the ground, made him place his hands around his neck and edged him on his back. Then, with consummate coolness and daring, and the casualty behind him, he started to worm his way to the trench from which he had started, crawling on his stomach with the wounded man clutching him tightly. He advanced inch by inch across the dangerous gap. This brave bandsman eventually succeeded in reaching the section of the trench where he would find help and relative safety. <laughs> Word on the street. Back in 2013 in Wales, Pontypool veterans worked hard to uncover the grave of a Rorke's Drift defender from under brambles. The work was undertaken by the Veteran Association Pontypool Branch after its chairman, Michael Black, aged 74, came up with the idea to clear the graveyard at St Caddock's Church. The aim was to gain access to the grave of Private John Samuel Jobbins, who defended Rorke's Drift in the Anglo-Zulu Wars in 1879, as the graveyard had become overgrown by weeds and brambles. Mr Black and branch members Stephen Vaughan, 57, Nigel Rees, 64 and Steve Joy, 62, set about clearing the Trevethan Cemetery and arranged the first annual service to him on January the 25th. Afterwards, the veterans visited E.I. Peake's funeral directors in Pontywithin and staff agreed to restore the grave and put a new memorial vase upon it, free of charge. Next, these guys had a little chat with Barrett Holmes, who built the Penny Garn Heights development on the former Trevethen School site. A street on the site was then named after him. Mr Vaughan said, We felt that Private Jobbins deserved recognition, and we are pleased that he will finally have a permanent site named after him, and we can't thank Barrett enough. The road was called Jobbins Way. Newport-born Private Jobbins, who was only aged 20, and enlisted in Pontypool in 1876, was posted to the 2nd Battalion of the 24th Regiment of Foot. He gave his trade as puddler, which is washing coal, and his home address as Malthouse Square in Pontypool. Sergeant Thomas Edward Rendell was awarded for this act of gallantry, the Victoria Cross. By 1915, he was back in Bodmin at the depot being enlisted to the 3rd Battalion at Falmouth, so that he might aid with recruiting, mainly due to his value as a VC holder. He was a member of the 3rd Battalion Band, who carried out a five-month recruiting march through Cornwall, before he moved with the 3rd Battalion to the Isle of Wight. He remained on the Isle of Wight for the remainder of the war, being promoted to Corporal and then Acting Sergeant. 
the 3rd Battalion were disbanded in 1919, at which time he was posted back to the 1st Battalion, where he was appointed band sergeant. In November 1920, he was discharged from the army, having been diagnosed with defective vision. In 1921, he returned to South Africa with his wife and two children, living in Cape Town, where he worked for the Standard Bank, though he was quickly appointed by the local regiment, the Duke of Edinburgh's own rifles, as their bandmaster. Thomas Edward Rendell died in Cape Town on the 1st of June 1946. He was buried there with full military honours. In 2014, on the 100th anniversary of his brave act, a commemorative stone was unveiled in the churchyard of St John's in Bedminster by the then Lord Mayor of Bristol, Alistair Watson, and Deputy Lord Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Flint. The commemoration was part of a nationwide campaign to honour First World War VC recipients. Rendell is one of eight soldiers in the city who have been awarded the Victoria Cross and were being recognised with a commemorative stone. The Department for Communities and Local Government provided 469 commemorative paving stones to local authorities, 145 to the National Arboretum and 35 to the Republic of Ireland to mark the bravery of people awarded the VC during the First World War. The stone being laid in honour of Thomas Rendell was the second of eight that was laid in Bristol over the five years, marking the anniversary of the action of VC holders closely connected to the city. The Lord Mayor of Bristol, Alistair Watson, said, We will forever be in debt to the people who served and lived through the First World War, and it's fitting that we can recognise the selfless acts of bravery displayed by those Bristolians who were awarded the Victoria Cross a hundred years on. We can all take immense pride in their actions. In 2016, Walter Ailes finally gets the recognition of a blue plaque on his former home in Ashleydown. Ailes was born in 1879 in Lambeth, South London. He moved to Birmingham where he worked as an engineer and was district secretary for the Associated Society of Engineers. In 1910, Walter Ailes moved from Birmingham to Bristol to become a local organiser for the Independent Labour Party. In 1912, he was elected city councillor for Easton. Shortly afterwards, publishing Bristol's Next Step, arguing that transport, gas and water must not be entrusted to private individuals any longer, but must be placed in the hands of the people themselves. In 1914, when war was declared, he was the only councillor to vote against a motion offering wholehearted support for the war. He was a founder member and national executive member of the No Conscription Fellowship. And after his imprisonment for distributing repeal the act, Ailes was conscripted. Like hundreds of other men from Bristol and the surrounding area who opposed the war on moral, religious or political grounds, he applied for conscientious objector status at a military service tribunal in what is now the Register Office in Corn Street. In the chair was pawnbroker Alderman Swaish, 
who managed to stop four of his employees being conscripted, but was less sympathetic to conscientious objector Walter Ailes. Ailes insisted on his written statement being read to the five members of the tribunal and its military representative. You see, all tribunals had to have one. His was Lieutenant Colonel Burgess. I am a Christian and a socialist. To me, the sacredness that enshrines the life of God enshrines the life of her children. Therefore, I cannot and will not kill. The colonel must have found it hard to say these words because he stopped there and said he couldn't read anymore because he'd forgotten his reading glasses. So, Ailes took the paper and carried on. If I believed in the efficacy of slaughter to remedy evils, I would long ago have advocated the killing of those who, year after year, have been responsible for the sweated, the starved and the slammed. I know, however, in my heart of hearts, that slaughter being wrong is no remedy. The tribunal didn't see it the same way and his efforts failed. He was eventually handed over to the military where he refused to wear a uniform. He was then court-martialed and served 112 days in prison with hard labour. On release, he was conscripted again and imprisoned again. Overall, he was imprisoned from April 1916 to February 1919. And whilst he was in prison, his wife, Bertha, like many other conscientious objectors' relatives, played a leading part in supporting him and continuing to oppose conscription and the war. After his release from prison, Ailes returned to Bristol and was elected MP for Bristol North in 1923. He became a Quaker, published The Hell of Unemployment, and after losing his seat in the election of 1924, won it back in 1929, holding it until 1931. His main campaign, though, throughout his life, was the opposition to war. Because horrible outrages and ghastly crimes have been committed by others, that is no reason why I too should kill and destroy. He wrote in a Bristol Independent Labour Party pamphlet. I can only help to prevent them by a refusal to join in war. Hate cannot be destroyed by hate. It can only be transformed by love. In 1945, he was elected as MP for Southall, moving to the constituency of Hayes and Harlington in 1950. He resigned his seat in 1953 and died in the same year, aged 74. The last veteran I'd like to talk about is a little bit of a mystery, as highlighted by the Ministry of Defence. At just 19 years old, aircraftman first class Clifford Granville Shaw should have had his whole life before him. Instead, he was killed when his RAF Bristol Blenheim bomber was shot down over France in 1940. Today, the MOD's Joint Casualty and Compassionate Centre is appealing for his family to get in touch after his gravesite was finally identified over 70 years after he was killed in action. Royal Air Force member Clifford, who lived in Raxall, near Bristol, was the son of Percy Merriweather Shaw and Ellen Grace Caroline Shaw, again of Raxall, Bristol. He had a brother, Ernest, who also died during the Second World War. 
Shaw was the wireless operator, machine gunner, on board Blenheim P6926 of 59 Squadron, when it was lost without trace on a sortie in the Sedan area of France on the 14th of May 1940. Over 70 years later, a member of the French public submitted a French Red Cross report about a crash in Vrigne-au-Bois on that date. An independent expert has been able to confirm that the aircraft described in the report was a Bristol Blenheim, and detailed research into the fate of all Blenheims lost on the 14th of May 1940 has proved that it was Blenheim P6926 that crashed at Vrigne-au-Bois. The three crew members were buried as unknown airmen. The three crew members were buried as unknown airmen in Choli War Cemetery. Now, an appeal has been launched by the MOD to trace Clifford's family. It was initially so they could be invited to attend a service of rededication of his grave in France in October 2016, which obviously didn't happen. But now the case has been put on the back burner but it would be lovely to find someone who was related to him. If you have any information or you can help in tracing Clifford's family, you can call the number 01452 712 612 extension 5465. Here is a reading from the rededication service for not only Clifford's crew, but that of Bristol Blenheim N6210. Their names were Flight Lieutenant Peter Augustus Hawkes, Pilot Officer Stephen Gregory Rose, Sergeant David Allen Ashton, Sergeant Frederick Joseph John Evans, Leading Aircraftsman Ernest Neptune Edwards, and of course, Aircraftman First Class Clifford Granville Shaw. Let us remember before God and commend to his surekeeping those who have died for their country in conflict. Those whom we knew and those whose memory we treasure and all who have lived and died in the service of humanity. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not worry them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them. to bring you a news blast. Michael Jackson's ghost seen at a Yankees game. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, now with a shrimp in every bite. Lil Uzi Vert's head diamond has been sold on the dark web. <laughs> Stories like this and more can be found at The Ever-Trending Story, a podcast where we peruse the news and write a fun fictional story for you. Find us wherever you download podcasts and follow us on the socials at EverTrendingPod and we are proud members of the Odd Pods Media Network. Not really news, but I went to the doctors this morning and I said, have you got anything for wind? He gave me a kite. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 11th of November 1942, 
when British-led Allied forces defeat Erwin Rommel's German and Italian army panzers in the Second Battle of El Alamein, North Africa, helping to secure the Suez Canal. On the 12th of November, 1912, British explorer Robert Falcon Scott's diary and body are found in Antarctica. Scott and his team members died on their return from the Pole from a combination of exhaustion, starvation and extreme cold. He became a British hero. His last note written as he froze to death read, For God's sake, look after our people. He was 43 years old. On the 14th of November 1991, Michael Jackson's black or white music video with groundbreaking morphing effects premieres simultaneously in 27 countries on NTV, Fox TV and BBC's Top of the Pops. On the 15th of November 1720, pirates Anne Bonny, Mary Reed and Calico Jack are captured by Captain Jonathan Barnett and brought to the Spanish town of Jamaica for trial. On the 16th of November 1940, in response to Germany's levelling of Coventry two days before, the Royal Air Force bombs Hamburg. The attack began shortly after nightfall and lasted until 5.30am on the Saturday. The docks were heavily battered. Lastly, on the 17th of November 1558, Elizabeth I, aged 25, ascends to the English throne upon death of her half-sister, Queen Bloody Mary. I'm afraid that's the end of this particular episode. But don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. I hope you enjoyed the show and feel, as I do, that all the men and women that fought in the wars deserve a huge amount of recognition. Before I go, though, I have to say a huge thank you to those stars who brought today's tale to life. And they are Joe Wilson and David Hale from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Steve Shepherd and Phoebe Hall. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs> <laughs>